Welcome to the Arrow Buddhist Tradition podcast series. The following podcast is from a teaching given by Nocturne Rinpoche in San Francisco in 2009 on the subject of relationship as practice. It is based on a book called Entering the Heart of the Sun and Moon, written by Nocturne Rinpoche and his wife, Contradation. For more information about the Arrow Buddhist tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. If you wish to make a donation to support this podcast project, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help and select Make a Donation. Thank you. Now, this is a somewhat impossible subject to teach, (laughs) Uh, being as it relies on an understanding of the non-dual state. So the first part of uh, this teaching might be horribly tedious, I'd warn you about that to start with, Uh, also monumentally disappointing because you're not going to hear anything about relationship for quite a while. Uh, Rest assured I am going to talk about it, but um, if I talk about it before I've introduced Uh, a reasonable understanding of emptiness first and then the non-dual state it's very difficult to understand what I'm going to say and what I say is very easy to misinterpret I suppose that understanding the present-day politics of any country is difficult to understand why people are as they are and why they react the way they react and you can really only understand it if you look at the history of the country and then you realize why people work in certain ways and why they have the ideas they have. Now in terms of um, talking about this you know I'm just you know, giving this as an example in terms of understanding a thing relies on a basis otherwise you can't understand what you're looking at there are many uh, aspects of the that your grandparents could have told you it's not uh, at one level highly involved or highly surprising many of the things I'm going to say about relationship are basic common sense. The, the interesting aspect of the counterpower, however, is that they're not simply presented as common sense, but they are explained in terms of the nature of reality, so that one can actually see how these things function and realize that they're not philosophical, ethical, or moral, or uh, simply someone's good idea, but they're part of the fabric of how we function wherever we come from, whatever political system, whatever culture. We work in the same way in terms of our basic nature and the um, manifestation of love and falling in love is highly particular and something can be learnt from it in terms of realizing the non-dual state 
So falling in love is both a manifestation of the non-dual state and a means of experiencing the non-dual state. But before we get to talking about that, we've got a lengthy, tedious and turgid... <laughs> I'm saying this so it won't be as bad when I get to it. <laughs> but uh, I hope you won't be too frustrated that we won't be talking about anything till this afternoon at least. Um, now, to compensate for this horror, <laughs> uh, we're going to start with a little love story. Uh, this comes from a book I've just completed with the help of the incomparable Zatzal. Is she here? Oh, well, we can't give her a round of applause and embarrass her then. Um, one of the things that I can say in advance about um, what I'm going to introduce, because uh, the book is about art, basically. Art meaning music, poetry, painting, all the arts. Uh, it was originally called, it's now called An Old Boy. The original title was At A La Recherche Tom's Perdu, which means In Search of the Lost Time. Uh, it was a book by Proust, and I just like the title uh, because the lost time for me is um, a period towards the end of the 60s and the early 70s when art really seemed to be a dominant force in people's lives, especially where I lived. Uh, so the book really spans uh, 1957 to 1975, and there it stops. Um, and it's uh, an exploration of my experience of the arts. Now, interestingly enough, uh, what, what comes to be counted amongst the art is my relationships, because I have no way of dividing them from art. And this is maybe something you'll understand a bit more by the end of the weekend, that um, this is something that is really crucial to the understanding of Vajrayana, of Tantra and Dzogchen, that the arts are intimately tied in with the sense fields, which are tied in with the fabric of our being in terms of the tiglis, in terms of our perception in terms of the non-dual state. So when we're looking at our relationships, we're also looking at art because we're looking at appreciation. And one can't uh, divide art and appreciation. And our appreciation for each other is artistic, fundamentally. So the book shows a kind of a weaving with the arts and with romantic relationship as being a unified field. I won't say any more about that. <coughs> I will hand over to Ergen Dorji to read the first three pages of a chapter called Easy Rider. This is chapter 14, September 1968 to November 1968. Um, What's actually written here is the title is Savage Cabbage, Easy Rider. Savage Cabbage was the name of a, a blues band Rimshay was in. 
my mother, quite out of the blue, said, Victor, I have been wondering, what attracts you to your girlfriends? I have met with fat ones, thin ones, short ones, tall ones, every shape and every color hair. <laughs> my mother was German. <laughs> She'd seen a string of girlfriends after Annalie left for Switzerland. They'd come and gone rapidly, and my mother was curious as to the briefness of my romantic associations. They do have something in common, I replied, after a deliberate pause. They're all female. <laughs> my mother laughed and shook her head in mock exasperation. And, I continued, I hoped to talk with them all about art, music, poetry, and painting. Well, they talk about it a little in the beginning, but then, in the end, they seem to lose interest. I suppose I lost interest as well when they had nothing to say about anything. I've never understood what attracted anyone to anyone, unless it was the minds of those to whom they were attracted. It was the ideas of which ladies were possessed that intrigued me, rather than what was fashionably alluring about them. There's always a certain look that's fashionable in any given period of time, and a certain body type. If you happen to be Rubenesque in a society that's decided emaciation is the ideal, you might perceive yourself as romantically doomed. The situation would be equally as ridiculous if it were reversed. Slaves of fashion like the style of romantic partner demanded by the legislature of the current trend. There are therefore relatively few people who admire who they admire because they themselves admire them. I didn't say any of this to my mother. It was weird enough as it was. <laughs> but I went on to tell her, I need to be able to talk with ladies. They need to be able to be subtle, witty, and ironic. I like to talk about the nature of reality and perception. My mother nodded knowingly. <laughs> I hope you will find such a girlfriend. I think you have too high expectations. <laughs> Maybe Victor, someone kind and generous, would develop such interests. I thought that was a good point. Anyone can become anything, and everyone is naturally creative if you give them a chance. My mother smiled. I am happy and a little relieved that you have this view of things. I was a little worried for you. <laughs> no need to worry, I replied. Life is fine and I'm off to a new school soon, so who knows what will happen. What my mother didn't know was that I'd already had exactly the kind of relationship I'd described. It had been with Annelie, but there was no way I could discuss that at the time. My mother told, I told my mother many years later, and she laughed till there were tears in her eyes. <laughs> A little background to this is that Annalie was 22 and I was 14. <laughs> you always were incorrigible. <laughs> It is well that your father never knew of this. What else do I not know? She asked, wide-eyed with anticipation. 
I was sure that there were other girls like Annalie in the world. I was saddened by the loss of her, but not as traumatized as I'd been about Alice. The loss of Alice was utterly needless and tragic, but the loss of Annalie had been built into our arrangement from the outset. There was no sense in mourning something that had been wonderful by virtue of the fact that its wonderfulness was irredeemably locked into its temporariness. I'd had a few attempted relationships, but schoolgirls all seemed a little adolescent after Annalie. It was no real answer to my situation, but my decision to buy a motorcycle took my mind off my lack of artistically <laughs> creative romance. <laughs> there was the romance of the open road and the major project of transforming my newly acquired motorcycle into a chopper. High-rise handlebars and swept-up exhausts gleamed at me. I'd struck lucky and found a motorcycle on which somebody had already begun the chopping process. The extended forks and Frisco pegs were already in place. Soon I'd be riding motorized art into the sunset. I'd be free to arrive in grand style anywhere and see what happened. Then suddenly, and entirely unexpectedly, Lindy Dale happened. I apologize in advance, said James. In my opinion, there's nothing in this world beats a Vincent 52 and a red-headed girl. <laughs> Richard Thompson, 1952, Vincent Black Lightning. Lindy Dale had extremely long ginger hair and phosphorescent eyes. I never knew such beings existed. Well, yes, I did, but suddenly it was as if I'd never seen a lady before. Lindy was entirely magical unearthly, yet tantalizingly tangible. When she was there, nothing else seemed to exist, or if it did, it was out of focus, subaudible, and indistinct. It was as if Alice, my first love, had returned as a fiery Valkyrie. We met at a party, and it was broad grins at first sight. I was immediately and utterly overwhelmed. I'd not seen a grin like that since Annalie, but this was the grin that made all other grins pale into insignificance. This was the grin that kick-started a thousand motorcycles. <laughs> 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 There's something about an unwithheld grin that stimulates hair growth, obliterates dandruff, <laughs> and nourishes every major organ. I was simultaneously awestruck and invigorated, simultaneously besotted and clear-headed. I exploded into the present moment knowing exactly where I was and with whom. I came to learn that Virginia Water School was an epicenter from which parties erupted like seismic assaults on everyday normality. There were parties almost every weekend if you were accepted by the Blues Illuminati. Pete Bridgewater and Greg Ford liked me, so I was there. I was going to like this school. I met Lindy at the beginning of the first term. I was walking toward the kitchen in the house where the party was being held, and there she was, backlit by a torrent of light from the upstairs landing. We both stopped in our tracks. After grinning at each other for an impossible duration, I asked her, do you like motorcycles? <laughs> Lindy just kept grinning but nodded in the affirmative. It's a nice evening for a ride. We could skip out and come back later. <clears throat> yes, uh, but then a cloud passed across her face. 
I wouldn't have a crash helmet. Certainly she would. I always had one strapped to the sissy bar just for, for just such eventualities. I only wear it when it's cold, and it'll probably fit snugly with all your lovely long hair. <laughs> the words are out of my mouth before I could check them. Lovely long hair. <laughs> I was not used to gushing compliments quite so immediately. I feared I'd blown it by sounding a gawky gigolo or something, but Lindy's <laughs> grin widened even further. And he pulled her on behind, and down to Box Hill they did ride. Same song. Box Hill wasn't far off, but we didn't ride there that evening. We'd have our Emma and Mr. Knightley picnic on another occasion. From Emma by Jane Austen, that was. Replete with picnic hamper. Lindy grasped my midriff in a manner that indicated she had a clear message to convey. <laughs> we rode round country lanes, quite sedately enjoying the view in the last hours of daylight. I would have ridden all night had I not been aware I'd eventually run out of petrol. <laughs> we found a petrol station and tanked up. I went in to pay, and when I came out, Lindy was standing in the unreal glare of the sodium lighting, staring rapt in wonder. I've always wanted to have a ride on one of these, she pronounced, one of these as if she were speaking of an object of extreme desire. I replied, it's entirely at your service, any time at all, anywhere you want to go. Lindy burst out laughing. You are very romantic, or is it just me? I deliberately understood and replied, it's just you. For me, at least. I'd done it again. I had no control of my mouth at all, but at least I didn't stammer. Lindy just grinned at me as if to say I was immune from faux pas. I love choppers. I've only seen them in photos. Did you build it? No, I hadn't built it. I just bought a half-chopped fixed-frame BSA and added to it. It already had the extended forks and Frisco pegs. I fixed the ape-hanger, sissy bars, and the swept-up exhaust. They're the newest adjunct. Lindy raised her eyebrows and said, they're fun. She pointed to the handlebars and the dental mirrors. Can you see anything in them? <laughs> I told her, I can see enough. I can see you at the moment, and that's all I need to see. <laughs> Lindy simply continued to grin. After some moments staring at each other in unabashed fascination, it seemed as if we were due back at the party. There'd be friends wondering where she was. One friend had an elder sister who'd drive them all home. When we walked back into the house where the party was in full swing, we were an established couple without a word being spoken to confirm it. We met frequently after that night because we saw each other at school every day. We had a self-evident long-term amorous direction, laced with art and non-stop <coughs> conversation. Lindy was extraordinarily intelligent, which was a slight problem inasmuch as she had far fewer free periods than I did. <laughs> she took more subjects at examination level than seemed possible for a human being. She took art, history, English, Latin, Italian, and French at A level. I thought of it almost, the thought of it almost made me cross-eyed. It didn't seem too much for her, though, and she appeared to rattle through books at an alarming rate. We talked about poetry. Byron, Keats, and Shelley 
we were in the same English class. We both enjoyed Shakespeare and both felt the same about Othello. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a, that's a kind of a, a story. Um, I'll be talking a, a lot about what was happening there, not particularly there, but what happens to us as human beings in that state and how that state arises. Um, we're going to change now to emptiness. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how many people here have had any teachings on the subject of emptiness, but it's approached in various different ways. It's approached in terms of silent sitting, mainly, uh, as uh, the state that exists when thoughts are not arising. If one looks at emptiness in terms of sutrayana, um, one can read books on the subject of emptiness. There's one I saw some years ago that's about this thick <laughs> and one might wonder how one could f fill a book on emptiness <laughs> <laughs> that was some three or four hundred pages but it is entirely possible because if you have um, a somewhat advanced intellect you can intellectually prove that nothing exists you can analyze the table and say where is the table, is it in its surface, in, in its legs, in its composition and you, you take everything away and you find there's no table there. Uh, but you really need quite a profound intellect to end up believing that because somehow there's still a table there at the end of the day with things on it. Um, so for those without a profound intellect uh, who, who can't look in that way um, there is the practice of silent sitting. Uh, the practice of silent sitting and actually arriving at the empty state uh, requires a great deal of experience, a great deal of time, and not everyone has the time to sit. I would say that unless you sit for an hour a day at least and have retreats every once in a while that the chances of of dwelling in the empty state are a little bit remote. So there really has to be another way of approaching it. Uh, the empty state is important for various reasons that, that we'll discuss. Um, but basically because reality is non-dual, it will reflect emptiness to us of itself. And this is something I'd like to talk about because it's really the core of what we will be looking at in terms of the Kandrapao Nida Melon. Um, emptiness is often misunderstood uh, as being the state of realization itself. It's often presented in this way in terms of Sutrayana. 
but this is not the case in terms of Tantra or Dzogchen so I'm going to look at the distinctions that exist there and I'm going to look at what the experience of emptiness and the practice of emptiness can be in everyday life because that is really where we can practice it this doesn't mean that, that one shouldn't engage in silent sitting practice or that one doesn't need to do that but the, if one has very little time for formal practice then it's really crucial that one is able to engage in the informal practice of experiencing emptiness in everyday situations in the passing display of one's emotions uh, in the sleep state, in wherever one's life circumstances so we're going to be alternating over the weekend between discussing this subject and having periods of silent sitting um, we're going to have uh, now Jopa Ergindoji is going to teach a little bit on the elements because the elements will come into this in terms of a section of uh, the book which is available on the subject called Entering the Heart of the Sun and Moon this one uh, which has at the back uh, a series of staggeringly incomprehensible vignettes <laughs> of relationship uh, I, I'll explain why they're incomprehensible Kantradecha uh, and I spent a long while pondering whether we were actually going to put these in the book or not as examples of the um, uh, liberated potentiality of a relationship and the dualistically deranged potentiality of a relationship and both are possible in terms of the elements with combinations of the elements and so this series of vignettes is uh, what happens when uh, say earth element woman and fire element man meet up how they can either uh, potentiate each other's liberation or how they can make each other's lives utterly miserable and both are always possible with any combination of the elements um, the reason that we didn't want to write this uh, and it took us a long time to decide that we were going to do it was that we didn't want it um, being appropriated as some form of pop psychology mm -hmm. uh, and so we decided to write it in the most inhumanly complex manner <laughs> it, it reads rather like poetry in a way and it reads in this style that you can um, you can only understand it if you've experienced being in that relationship it's been quite fun hearing bits of it read out because you can hear in the 
in the dualistically deranged part, some are going, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been there, it was bad. Uh, but you can only really groan about it if you have been there, otherwise it's just a lot of words that, that don't make a great deal of sense, uh, because it's, it's entirely compressed. Uh, at some point, we'll read a few of these out, and you can get a flavour of them. Um, we've had to put a uh, a glossary of uh, obscure and archaic English into the book because there are many words there with which you'll be entirely unfamiliar. Um, it was really quite an exercise to write these vignettes because we realized that the English language was actually too small to talk about the subject in terms of qualities. Uh, interestingly enough, you, you, you may not know that English is over three times as, as large in its vocabulary as the next largest language. Uh, so it, it's vast, but we ran out of words. <laughs> so we had to look into the Oxford uh, larger dictionary, this huge thing for all kinds of words that were there, so it wouldn't be repetitive. Uh, we then had to run a, uh, some software on the text in order to find out the number of times certain words with Excel, I think it was, and, and we we put the thing in, and and then we had to locate all the fire element words mm. and take them out of the water element where they occurred and replace them, <laughs> and try not to repeat any word more than three times, mm. Mm. Uh, which was a massive endeavour. Uh, it took almost as long to do this as to write the book. <laughs> Uh, so this is some of the background to that, uh, and they exist in the book so you can read them and uh, get some kind of either inspiration or warning from them. <laughs> but it's not something that's intellectually accessible. I think this is really quite important. I think maybe next time I come back here, um, I'll be giving a weekend on uh, the spontaneous poetry of being, which will deal with silent sitting and poetry. And poetry is quite an interesting area because with the right kind of poetry, you, you cannot approach it analytically. You can't approach it in terms of linear sense-making. And these vignettes are very much in that style. You can't really try to understand them intellectually. You'll either have had the experience or you won't have had the experience. And this is very much the case with transmission and very much the case with understanding any teaching on the non-dual state. The same frame of mind is required uh, as it is for understanding modern poetry. Any questions so far?
pay any um, questions that people are too embarrassed to ask and have to be <laughs> cajoled into asking. Um, I'm, I'm a relatively friendly person, I, <laughs> and I don't go in for humiliating audience members or anything like that, so I, I, I know there are people who do this. Uh, but. Um, Sometimes people think, well, my question is a dumb question. It's actually often those questions that are most interesting, but um, people think they have to ask something entirely profound to make it worthwhile, but I'm happy to answer anything. I have a question. Yes, uh, thank it's you. It's about the empowerment last night. Yes. There was a part towards the end of it that was so interesting to me. It was the, the mudra part mm -hmm. that began like that. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about that? I'm so mm. curious about, well, about what that represented in the overall... I won't go into the whole thing, but the, the first aspect, this. This is called the mudra of the lotuses of emptiness and form. And when performed well, I'm, I wouldn't say I perform it really well, but it should be seamless. You know, the hands should not stop moving at any point, and they shouldn't actually touch each other. So this describes how they open up, they move into each other, they're entirely interdependent, and it's a play of energy in terms of f form manifesting. Mm -hmm. Form dissolving. Mm -hmm. And then it goes into the other mudras, uh, which... Um, this is very much the case with what we'll talk about in terms of how we are as either male or female and what that means in terms of uh, the aspects of ourselves that are emptiness and form. I won't say any more just there otherwise I'll launch into subject matter that's coming later. Thank you. Any other questions before we move on? Um, somewhat related, you said that emptiness is not to be mistaken for the realized state mm -hmm. and I wondered if you could expand on that just a, a tad because I think it often hits. Yes, I'm going to do that. That's the rest of the weekend. <laughs> uh, well, it's the rest of the morning, yeah, I, but I, I will certainly go into that. One of, the, one of the big problems I always have when I teach this subject is that in order to explain this, I've got to explain that, but to explain that, I've got to explain this. Uh, it's, uh, I, I don't mind doing it, but it's, it's always it's impossible to tease the thing apart and go through it in a straight line. It, it, it refuses to do that, which kind of suits the way I teach anyway, but um, which is why none of the other teachers were training ever teach on this subject, because it, it's, it's far too convoluted. Uh, when you talked about that, if we haven't had the experience, then it won't make sense to us. Mm -hmm. Well, I have the experience when some, sometimes when I hear teachers like yourself speak that the words seem 
fairly easy to understand, but I don't feel like I'm actually understanding. Like it. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering the value of. I love coming to Dharma talks. Anyway, I'm wondering what you would speak of the value of listening to Dharma talks, even if you're not understanding my own thoughts. My own thought was, well, then maybe at some point I'll recognize what you have said and go, oh, that's that's what mm. I was talking about. I th I think it's very important, in fact, to hear the same teachings over and over and over again because. Uh, I've often had people come up to me uh, and say, you know, I, I've heard you say that so many times, and, and, and t t but today I really got something. Uh, and it's not a question of an accumulation of information that makes it happen. Is that every time you hear it, it resonates in some kind of way, but doesn't really come out. Um, I think that we, we make a great deal of intellect uh, as a sense field and uh, people are in fact surprised when I call it a sense field it's like smelling, hearing, it's not you know it's not the king or queen monarch of the other senses that's how most people tend to relate to it um, actually you know thinking and intellectual understanding is pretty useless in a lot of ways uh, you can discover that quite easily um, I've got all kinds of examples of this my brother and his wife decided to take me on a skiing holiday one time they had this timeshare place and I'd never skied before and um, he showed me a video no? <laughs> and it was a very good video. <laughs> it had little arrows that came up from the skis and showed certain things and showed what happened when you lean back. It's a very bad thing to lean back. <laughs> then the tips of your skis wobbled, they hit the first bump and one goes that way. Oh. I said, oh, yeah, I really understood it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I had it clear, you know. I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be one of those lean back people. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then I get on the slope and go, whoa. <laughs> I go, come forward, forward. And my body's saying, oh, I'm not going forward. It's a slope. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, well, that's interesting. I, I finally did hurl myself forward, but it was an act of insanity <laughs> <laughs> you know, and what what made it better was the experience of it working mm -hmm. so no matter how profound the, the video was and how cleverly it was made with all the little animated arrows and everything and you, you understood it all perfectly but when it came to practicing it all that information went out the window and, you, and I just went on a gut reaction and that completely overcame um, everything I'd learned from this it was just zero and that what made a difference was the uh, how it felt I thought oh right that works well I knew it worked because I watched the video <laughs> um, <coughs> then there are all kinds of things that we think we like and we think we don't like.
can be surprised. You, know, you think you're going to like something, you go there and you think, oh, you know, this might be what's happening now. You think, oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds interesting. That's, that's, I like the sound of that. We cannot go along. Oh, Jesus, what is this? <laughs> Why did I come here? You know. Um, and then, uh, you know, things you think you're not going to like that you get there and you find yourself liking. Um, once, some 20 years ago, sometime like that, uh, on my birthday or thereabouts, I received a package from the States. I can't even remember which part it was now because it was anonymous. And it, it was an old gun an old cap and ball, you know, muzzle loader, pistol. And it just said, happy birthday, have fun. I never, never knew who sent it to me, but, but there it was. How it got through customs, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, they're legal in Britain because they're antique, you know, so, you know, you don't need a license for them. <laughs> and you can still have them. And I thought, that's fun. So I learned to twirl it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. And then one of my students said, you know, you could put firing caps in that and make it go bang as well. I said, well, that would be nice. So I put firing caps on it. And he said, would you ever fancy, you know, shooting? And I said, not really. I shot a bit of air gun as a child, but shooting doesn't interest me. <laughs> and uh, then, unbeknownst to me, I went to... Austria and someone had arranged an afternoon shooting for me and Kandradechen and we um, it was horrible hot weather I, I hate the heat and we went to this place that was pretty boggy and there were mosquitoes we call them mozzies <laughs> I think we call them skeeters yeah um, and no seams <laughs> oh god the place was thick with it it was horrible uh, but uh, I really didn't want to go out. I wanted to stay inside where it was cool. But I thought, well, these folks have arranged this for me very kindly, so I'll just go along and enjoy myself. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went along, I picked up the gun. Boom. I thought, ooh, 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 that was good. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed that. Is there a bigger one? <laughs> <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> so there was this whole... Uh, the concept consciousness was saying I'm not interested in this but all the other sense fields were ah more 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 <laughs> so um, you know you, you have the intellect there that's telling you one thing or not telling you a thing and then you've got all the other sense fields that have got their own idea about what's going on mm. uh, when you hear a teaching it's not just the it's not just concept consciousness that's in operation anyway because you're hearing it there's a sound and that sound is part of it as well there's the ambience of the room there are all kinds of things and I'm still answering your question by the way <laughs> uh, there are what we call the five certainties which are the teacher, the teaching, the time, the place, the audience. And in terms of Vajrayana teaching, all those have to be in place, you know, in order for understanding to arise. 
so the time and the place you know obviously the teaching the teacher but what's harder to understand is the time and place which is really the juncture of understanding when something will click and it's not because you suddenly got more intelligent or something your IQ went up or, or whatever it's simply that that juncture was there in terms of the rest of your experience the rest of your life and practice having taken you to a point where it suddenly makes sense but it's not again that's not intellectual then it's a question of transmission that occurs then it can be very interesting having that experience listening to tapes of a teaching you attended <laughs> and have it on the fourth exactly the same you know it's not a different presentation of the same subject it's the same and you were there and on the fourth or fifth time whoa <laughs> it's related to that <laughs> very interesting. Mm -hmm. you know, the only thing that's changed is, is you.